0: All right, welcome to The Bridge Podcast. This is episode 56. I'm your host, John Lamberton. Today I'm joined by uh, David Borgo. David is a saxophonist, improviser. Uh, he teaches at University of uh, California, San Diego. I always want to throw Southern in there, but it's just University of California. Um, got projects like Kyborg and Chronomorphic and the author of Sink or Swim. Uh, that's sync with a Y and a C for listeners who aren't seeing the word. Um, improvising music in a complex age. David, welcome sync, to the podcast.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, or John. sink or swarm. Sorry, uh, sink or swarm. Yeah, I was going to give a
0: slight correction there. I was so um, stuck on uh, the sink being, uh, you know, auditorily the same as other sink. But anyway, um, welcome to the podcast. Th- yeah, thank you. Um, so uh, as you know, uh, I start these conversations out asking people about their coffee habits. Could you tell me about your coffee habits, preferences, anything that you can share about that? Oh, Sure. Uh,
1: Well, I'm certainly not a coffee snob, but I do enjoy a nice dark roast, and I I try to limit myself to two cups a day. I guess my go-to device was the Aero Aero press. Mm -hmm. Um, Until recently, though, uh, I I was fortunate to spend five weeks in in Paris this summer teaching a course on jazz in Paris, and the, the apartment we were renting there had a nice French press, and I sort of got enamored with French press coffee instead. So just recently, I bought myself a French press and have switched directions a bit.
0: Nice. So you like the uh, the sort of higher
1: body, uh, thicker coffees? Yeah, I think I like when you can see a little residue on the uh,
0: on the top of the cup. <laughs> a oily like? residue. <laughs> it's an underappreciated uh, quality in coffee these days. Everybody wants you know the, the most thick paper filter possible. But um, yeah, I can I can appreciate some sediment. <laughs> um, so uh, before we get into the book, um, I just wanted to ask a little bit about your projects, Chronomorphic and Kyborg. Um, you know, it seems like in Kyborg, you're basically doing you know, kind of computer augmentations of your instruments. And I'm curious how you think about that, sort of what the guiding principles are. I assume that you're sort of, uh, you're collo- your collaborator doing sort of, you know, your own bespoke uh, software on that. Mm
1: hmm. Yeah, so, uh, well, first off, my collaborator in Kyborg is Jeff Kaiser, a really wonderful trumpeter and computer musician, and he also now has a faculty position at the University of Central Missouri in their computer music department. Um, And yeah, I I really have to credit Jeff with bringing me into that world, you know, he kind of, he's expert at Max MSP, so he he was very sort of patient in, in teaching me the ropes so that I could design my own systems. and. I guess maybe like many, I've probably gone through way too many different iterations of my system. Uh, I mean, at one point, I had kind of switched from a computer to an iPad, because there was really a wealth of things that you could do on an iPad-based system. Um, and even more recently, I've kind of gone back to the hardware-based uh, you know, signal processing, just because in some ways, I like the simplicity of all of that. I guess I, I guess I come to it, yeah, primarily as an artist rather than a programmer or a technologist, which means... I'm you know I'm kind of fascinated by I think once once my ears opened up to the sort of electroacoustic spectrum as an improviser you realize it is a kind of augmentation right of your natural you know I've I've developed over the decades a kind of intimate connection with the saxophones and flutes and things like that all of a sudden now you have an, another agency seemingly Right, that's swimming around in there. That's altering your sound, and you're you're getting this immediate sort of trans transmorphing of what you've what you've just played, uh, and that enough is kind of it, it inspires new forms of creativity. Uh, and then, of course, I always enjoy playing with other people, not just with the computer. So, you know, now you're you're sort of negotiating this interaction between the other humans on stage, but also the all the devices on stage and. Uh, I guess for the – in terms of my theoretical writing, I've, I've often gone to things like actor network theory or or other theories that actually talk about how we can kind of spread agency beyond just the human participants, right? That, you know, the, the all of the sort of influences and energies that are coming together uh, to impact cognition uh, are – you know, are multi- multiple, right? And they're coming from the room and from, you know, the sort
0: of social environment and so much more. Yeah. Interesting. Um, uh, you know, I think of uh, people like George Lewis, who you mentioned in the book, and um, like Michael Dessen, who does the Digibone, and, um, you know, all these people that are doing sort of these like hyper instruments where they're augmenting their instrument. I'm curious um, if there are any other influences, uh, you know, that impacted how you conceived of this type of, uh, approach. Yeah,
1: that's a great question.
0: Um, although I often think of George's
1: system, his his classic Voyager, as you know, the primary question he was asking audiences to entertain was: Can we empathize with this computer musician on stage? Right? Can we feel as if it, you know, it's deserving of our empathy in the same way that human performers are? Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I I admit readily admit as an instrumentalist that. Probably the paradigm that most closely matches what I like to do is this hyper instrument, right? Or augmented instrument where
0: you're kind of taking what you already do and adding new layers to it. Very cool. Um, cool. So um, it, to get into the book, Sinker Swarm, uh, you know, uh, I was reading the revised version, uh, which came out February of this year. And the last version was 2004, correct? Uh, yeah, I think five or six is. So it came out in hardback in five and maybe paperback in six. Uh, so I guess like I, I didn't read the original version, so I'm curious, uh, what sort of the big changes were. Sure. Yeah. In a way I, I took advantage of
1: the opportunity to, to do a revised version to really almost rewrite it from the ground up. So in some ways I think of it as a a new book. Um, I mean, there certainly are things that were in the first edition that, that held over, but, uh, I've... In some ways, I wanted to benefit from you know 15 plus years of new thinking mm-hmm. about it and writing you know various shorter essays and articles. I would say that the one of the shifts is that I did discuss more directly uh, sort of machine human machine interaction. So sorry about um, And electronics and electroacoustic improvising. I I think I also one thing I tried to do was sort of arrive at a more balanced view, I guess if you like of the relationship between what we often call improvisation and composition. You know, I think there was a sort of polemic in the earlier version. Understandably so. I mean, I, I still will readily admit that, you know, one thing I do is advocate for the importance of improvisation, that we should value it, you know, that it should be a viable career path. Um, you know, That, and I think in many respects, it has been devalued or undervalued. But I, I think I've arrived at a place in my life and my thinking where I'm, I'm uh, you know essentially the final section of the revised version is about complementarity and meta stability this idea that you know improvisation and composition essentially imply one another you know it really would be impossible to or I think it would be ill-advised to separate them out categorically
0: yeah uh, it seems like there's a, a saying that people often refer to which is like um you know improvisation is just spontaneous composition and I feel like they're like you can take that as a truth, but it's also like there's there's more to it than that. I think, which I think you're trying to get into. Um, so, how how do you define improvisation specifically? Is it um, about spontaneity, or is it about indeterminacy, or uh, a little bit of both? Um, how how would, do you think about it as a big picture? Yeah,
1: maybe maybe first, can I I'll I'll, I'll, I'll approach the question from a more personal vantage point because I think we kind of get in trouble when we do you know, want to make these stark categorical distinctions. What I guess, what, what did first attract me to improvisation? Um, you know, when I was a teenager, learning how to play the saxophone and starting to learn how to play jazz, there was this kind of epiphany when I realized, you know, in checking out Charlie Parker's recordings, that he could play the same composition, right, the same tune, and night after night, produce, you know, radically different solo, a different improvisation. And, you know, as a young person... That was a bit of a was a huge epiphany, right? That you could actually make music on the spot uh, that wasn't kind of just beholden to reading the notes on the page. Um, so, I, you know, I think that that at least inspiration has always stuck with me. This idea of making music in the moment, um, negotiating the musical moment with you know other people and in front of an audience. You know, this is what jazz musicians and improvisers live for. But yeah, I think we do get into trouble when we, you know, we want to kind of come up with these little catchphrases like spontaneous composition, because if for no other reason, then you know, our surrounding culture tends to devalue spontaneity, right? We like people to follow rules and, to, you know, really think think long and hard about what they're going to do before they do it, and you know, and and yeah, well, the letter of the law is always just that, right? It's the letter of the law. It's the written words that carries the most. Um, So I I tend to think that it's better to think of improvisation and composition as complementarity, right, in a complementary relationship. Meaning, I mean, it would be impossible to to improvise is to compose, right? You know, I guess the most basic definition of composition is to put things together, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And you can't really imagine anyone composing without improvising, without bringing creativity and thinking through new ideas, I mean, even on that most fundamental level, they obviously imply one another. But I think, you know, the idea of metastability is that, you know, so yeah, the, once you acknowledge there's this, this complementary relationship, then then you can kind of begin to parse out, you know, what aspects of creativity are we, you know, maybe emphasizing the most or valuing the most. Um, I mean, I, there's often when people talk about improvisation, they go to the conversation metaphor, right? It's like mm-hmm. having a conversation. And that, you know, has maybe some shortcomings, but I think it's useful to think about. Um, you know, when you're improvising, you know, on the one hand, I don't know what I'm going to say right now. But on the other hand, you know, you have a long-lived history. You've kind of composed— a way of being in the world. You've composed a life. And so, yeah, I like to think of musical improvisers as essentially composing a life in music, right? They've created a relationship to sound and their instruments and the kinds of collaborators that they work with. Um, Just as composers, you know, are obviously nurturing an improvisatory ethos, right? If they want to continue to create and come up with new ideas... So I guess I've, I've, I'm trying to arrive at a point in my thinking in life where I don't position these as opposites. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a nice book uh, by Paul Rinsler called The Contradictions of Jazz, where he outlines, you know, how we often position things as somehow polar opposites. Right? Like how could how could you be both assertive and open at the same time? Right? Mm-hmm. We somehow think that that's not possible, but in fact that's what improvisers are doing. Right? They're asserting themselves. They're sort of telling their you know their truth musically speaking but they're also you know in, in, incredibly open to you know the input of others and trying to negotiate that moment and i always think about musical improvisation more as a on the social level per se than the you know the technical or musical level
0: interesting um so you know i've spoken with uh, your colleague shlomo dubnov who does a lot of work on like machine uh, improvisation or like it, computer based improvisation. And, um, you know, I feel like for a lot of people hearing the idea of a computer, this thing that isn't sentient, supposedly, uh, uh, you know, improvising sounds like a little bit of a a wacky idea. But I'm curious, um, I mean, do you think that improvisation in the sense that you're talking about is uniquely human? Or um, how does it extend into sort of the machine realm? Sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I love Shlomo's work, and yeah,
1: he's you know among you know many researchers that are kind of trying to. I mean, I guess that's the the sort of the the key word of the moment, right? Is artificial intelligence and all of these sorts <laughs> of things. Um, I tend to think we're probably better served thinking about kind of augmenting, right? So, uh, you know, our our human cognition. In, at least in my view, is already Im- fully embodied and situated and distributed. We could talk more about that, if you like. but the you know the kind of four e model of cognition is that cognition's embedded, embodied, uh, inactive and extended, right? And so in that sense, you know the way we think is always uh, informed by and shaped by the kinds of tools and resources and environments we inhabit. And, you know, computers are just the latest addition to that repertoire. Um, so, yeah, I think, the, you know, the, maybe the, the better way to think about it is rather than positioning them as sort of isolated agents, you know, um, and in some ways humans themselves are not isolated agents. You know, I, we, we place a lot of value on individuality and, you know, individual agency. And there are good reasons to do that, but I think we also need to acknowledge that, you know, it takes a village, right? Um, you know, we we are all sort of shaped. As an ethnomusicologist, I I believe deeply in the idea that you know culture, we you know we are enculturated beings, right? We grow up with a worldview that is shaped by the kinds of cultural and social norms and values and experiences we've had. So, yeah, I guess to go back to the machine, I would, you know, rather than trying to think of them as isolated, intelligent beings, I, I prefer to think of it as, you know, a new dimension that's being added to our already extended cognitive realms.
0: Um, it's sort of a weird question, but um, just to try to, you know, hone in on a specific aspect of this uh, improvisation definition, I... Uh, if somebody is using, for instance, like a random process, like rolling dice or something um, to determine some aspect of their you know, musical performance that they're about to do, would you consider that it, improvisation in any sense? Or um, is that just sort of indeterminacy?
1: Yeah. No, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I guess to the extent that I deal with it in the book, I even in the first edition, I talked a bit about the kind of you know, I think it's a bit of a tortured history in, in sort of 20th century music that all of these other terms arose in some ways to avoid saying improvisation, right? <laughs> Indeterminacy, stochastic music, uh, intuitive music. You know, there were these composers often preferred terms that didn't involve using improvisation. I and mean, we could talk about maybe some racial dimensions to that equation. Um, in part because I think improvisation was becoming so heavily identified with black music and jazz in particular. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, you know, I've maybe entropy is maybe a better word than randomness in that sense. Um, and I mean, entropy is sort of always a component of of life and in musical life. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, I've. I mean, when you work with electronics, like say an electroacoustic improvising setting, I mean, randomness is often an important tool, right? You know, maybe I want to set it up so when I press this particular button, I don't quite know what's going, what to expect, right? What's going to happen? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think embracing randomness to a certain extent is useful, but, but again, I guess I, I think listeners and myself in particular, often what we want to hear is the, the sort of negotiation of agency. Happening in the musical moment.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, I'm curious. Uh, so, like, I, I think about complexity and chaos and sort of complicatedness as all distinct things. Um, and complicatedness, I think, is kind of interesting to me because I think of it as like, kind of like, it doesn't have that special emergence uh, or sort of like self organizing quality of complexity. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm curious where your mind goes with the notion of complicatedness um as distinct from those other uh you know aspects because like i think maybe like um certain types of design like if you think about like the reductionism that has to go into making a plane it's like more engineering than art maybe um and there's something about it that's extremely powerful but it's like it doesn't have the same sort of like parsimony of like a complex you know function um does that mean anything to you
1: yeah, no, I think you're, you're definitely onto something. Right, these terms complicated, complex, chaotic. Um, you know, they 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 sort of have a you know network relationship to one another. But I think I think how I talked about it in the, the revised book is that complicated. You know, complicated is essentially a relation of things, right? You know, you can make a very complicated relationship between things, but complex is a relationship between relationships, meaning, let's see, what would be, like, you could have a very complex, complicated family tree, right, that your you know, your relatives are kind of sort of connected to one another in complicated ways. But I think you have complex family dynamics, in the sense that, you know, if you were really to try to understand, you know, how all of the members of your family, all of their influences and interests and activities intersected or overlapped or didn't, you know, that's a sort of complex problem that one that you really couldn't arrive at a you know a single answer to, right? It's a sort of evolving, as you mentioned, self-organizing, you know, people's interests are shifting, right? And trying to map that out would be a very complex. Process, but you could map out a kind of complicated family tree if you were only interested in, you know, well, how is this person related to that person, mm-hmm. biologically speaking? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, let's see here. I um, guess to, I mean, if, if I wanted to do a musical example, yeah, I mean, I try to. Sometimes I resist this, but, but I, you know, I think when you're, you can obviously write very complicated musical notation. Uh, And many composers do, you know, some even, of course, um, you know, write music that's meant to be more complicated than a human performer can can Mm -hmm. feasibly feasibly parse. Um, But, you know, so we could talk about the relationship between the, you know, the the dots on the page as a complicated one. But the actual music being performed is always going to be complex, you know, meaning there's going to be just too many variables to to keep track of in terms of even if it's just a performer trying to in, interpret a you know a fairly how you know score or something um you know the uh, all of those other dimensions of the you know the the, the you know essentially the instrument set up for that day or how the performer's feeling or the you know the acoustic of the room or you know, just the sort of energy being generated by other people listening, you know, these would all be things that you'd want to take account of if you really wanted to have a a fuller understanding of that performance.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, You mentioned sort of the the racial uh, angle on improvisation and that term being useless. I'm curious to hear more about that. Because I mean, like, I guess like stochastic, like I've seen people get irritated by, you know, like, People like me saying stochastic uh, and sort of like inappropriately using it Um and so I don't know like I, I I'm probably guilty of saying technical terms instead of something that's just like normal and embodied like improvisation but um, yeah. Yeah, I'd be curious to hear more about that
1: I, mean, I think technically stochastic means means essentially random like throwing dice and I, I would probably be inclined to argue that humans don't do anything that's random right we mm-hmm. we actually because of our enculturation, you know, because of our sort of patterns and rituals, you know, we, we have a very sort of developed way of being in the world. I mean, one thing creative improvisers can do is maybe try to become more aware of that and acknowledge that and maybe push past their normal routines and expectations but even then it's kind of a conscious choice to do that right it's to become more aware of well, what are my habits what are my licks you know so to speak and mm-hmm. how can i get myself out of that rut but that's certainly not random right it's it's a sort of conscious creative decision to do something new so yeah and in that sense you know maybe randomness doesn't play much of a role in the kind of improvised music that that at least i enjoy hmm uh, but the
0: the racial di- dimension of oh the, yeah uh, the
1: racial dimension. Um, <laughs> well, I I would say you know maybe this does go back to George Lewis. Even he has a very you know frequently cited article that he talked about Afrological and Eurological uh, understandings of music in the 20th century, and he uses maybe Charlie Parker and John Cage as as sort of uh, you know uh, stand-ins for that larger discourse, but. I mean, George's argument, really, it's, it's not a racial one, but it's more about culture. But in Afrological musics, you know, the idea is not to somehow have the music be devoid of human intention and human agency and, uh, and those sorts of things. But in fact, to fully embrace that, to negotiate that, you know, uh, the, uh, Miles Davis wanted to call jazz social music, right? You know, he didn't like the word jazz, but social music sounded right to him. Um, whereas I think in the more urological tradition, as as George was laying it out, you know there has been this tendency to try to uh, separate you know quote unquote music from the the agency and intentions and humanity of the people involved in making it. So yeah, I think some of those terms that were meant to avoid saying improvisation were just that. We're trying to you know sort of keep that messy social stuff at bay, uh, and, you know, focus on, you know, this sort of music as a, as an ontological work of art, right? Something that we can separate out from all of the messiness. Um,
0: so, uh, in terms of complexity, um, like, I feel like, you know, complexity is like this magical thing to me because it's like all these interacting parts generate some sort of new whole, and, um, I guess like there's something about life and complexity, like in the sense of like biological life where it's like it has that um, animated quality. And I think about like uh, like cellular automata and how like you can have these like little rule based uh, binary code things that almost appear to be lifelike because uh, just like the rules maintain their movement. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, I'm curious. uh, I mean, like, are you interested in like Stephen Wolfram's work or like uh, that type of stuff? um where where does your mind go with like the notion of like complexity as an aesthetic or like as some sort of like uh you know life force that we connect with artistically sure
1: yeah no yeah i, mean, I certainly know wolfram's work i don't think i've read word for word his his you know his massive books but Neither um but <laughs> i've but i've but i've played with things on his website often and and I i think more broadly I mean, what you're, what you're hinting at is this idea of self-organization, right? That it's a foundational principle of life, even consciousness, right? That somehow we get something greater than or different from the sum of its parts, right? Um, and, yeah, I've, I mean, I've been fascinated by, you know, theories of well, autopoiesis is one, but, um, yeah, there's, you know, consciousness studies has really kind of taken off, in the sense that you know, for a long time, it was a it was a taboo topic to even write about consciousness. Um, but now I think there's a lot of really wonderful thinkers writing some great theories about consciousness uh, and how it isn't a kind of it's an emergent property. I guess I like the word emergence a lot too. Um, but it can be tricky to get your head around, right? Because, like you said, it seems magical, right? How how can something, you know, emerge? from a purely physical or material realm. At times I've described myself as an anti-reductionist materialist, meaning, you know, I, I do believe, you know, that in the material world and, you know, sort of the natural processes that we are able to model, at least through science, you know, whether it's biological sciences or, yeah, the cellular automata are essentially a kind of modeling technique for trying to understand biological processes. Um, But I'm anti-reductionist in the sense that I I don't, I think for far too long we thought that you could just break systems apart into their component parts and get smaller and smaller components until you get to the subatomic level. And if you could only understand everything that was going on at the subatomic level, everything else would be, you know, fully comprehensible. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I, I, I tend to, of course, subscribe to the view that at new levels of complexity, new levels of organization, new emergent behaviors appear um, and yeah, life was clearly a, a fairly significant moment of emergence when somehow you you get these you know these little single cellular organisms that are able to you know essentially they're you know making some decisions to seek out. You know things that are beneficial to their their sustenance and and things that are detrimental they're Mm -hmm. trying to avoid and yeah it's it's those kinds of basic principles that then compound and complexify if you like and you start to get you know essentially the emergence of cognition and consciousness and what we think of as human consciousness I think you know I think there's also been a nice push against the idea that humans are somehow uh, you know, of a different kind and order than everything else that we know, you know, the more we understand human cognition and consciousness and emotion, the more
0: we can realize that it extends throughout much of the life world. Um, I'm curious if you have any sort of like, I mean, I'd be curious what, uh, theories of mind are like, sort of like writing on consciousness you're, uh, most convinced by or most intrigued by, um, Yeah. <laughs> Sure. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Um, it can, it can change day to day depending on which book I've read most recently. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, let's see, I I read a book by, um, uh, I think his name is Mark, Mark Solms. It's called The Hidden Valley. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think, you know, he, I mean, one of the things he was trying to do is, you know, there's also been this obviously brain centric move in the last few decades to try to locate where things are occurring in the brain. And often we talk about the neocortex, you know, and the, you know, as the site of our humanity. But what he really is, what he was arguing, is that it's much lower in the brainstem. Essentially, that consciousness is emerging. Um, the, let's see. Uh, I think Michael Graziano has some interesting things that I've read. Anil Seth is another author. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, in a way there's a, a really kind of vibrant discourse right now around consciousness and how we can best talk about it and um yeah i hope i hope that helps a bit
0: uh it's interesting that you mentioned like sort of the nervous system because like there's that passage in the book about basically like, you don't improvise at the speed of how you think or at the rate that you think but uh, more at the rate of your nervous system and so like that gets to the sort of embodiedness of improvisation um I mean like uh, I'm trying to imagine what like a brain in a vat improvising would be like but um, can you talk a little bit more about the sort of embodied cognition element of improvisation? Okay, sure.
1: Yeah, I think that might have been Pauline Oliveros that I was quoting at that point. Um, But yeah, uh, I I tend to think, yeah, there's this one, I mean I guess again I'll maybe just talk from a personal vantage point when, when I'm improvising. Of uh, the sort of phenomenological sense that I often have is that I'm not fully aware of of why I'm doing things or what I'm doing, even in some instances. Um, and I think that's because what we are doing is kind of shutting down some of our, and even some of the neurological studies support this idea that we're we're shutting down our kind of, what's the best way to say it, our. You know our self-monitoring systems, right, in the in the frontal and neocortex, so that we can operate in a way that we're not always thinking about and critiquing and reflecting on our activity. So, in that sense, you know, I, I do think there's a kind of desire among improvisers to to try to cultivate that state where you're really, you know, thinking with the body rather than the brain. I guess if you wanted to hold to those things, but I guess the embodied cognition. Approach is actually to try to get past that binary between body and brain, right? Our, our brain is is already fully embodied in the sense that it's it's an organ, you know, it's a kind of predictive organ uh, of the body that mm-hmm. is is doing its best, shut in this dark, cold place, you know, you know, trying to figure out based on the kinds of information that the body is sending it what to anticipate, what to expect, right? How to maybe ramp up and be best prepared for the next moment. You know, I mean, I'm kind of obviously speaking rather loosely, but this is the predictive mind hypothesis, right? That, you know, essentially this is what our brain is primarily doing, is trying to predict our engagement with the world. And it does that through a lived history of being in the world, right? Of having a body and having sets of experiences and cultivating expectations, So that, yeah, to me, that's what improvisers are doing is just that they're, you're in a kind of predictive mode when you're improvising. You're trying to anticipate, well, what's, you know, what might happen next? You know, what might someone do? But you're not, you know, rationalizing that or reflecting on it, but rather sort of embracing this predictive mode that, we're, that we use just to get around, right? Just to walk th- on the sidewalk, you know, a crowded sidewalk or something. You know, mm-hmm. those are some other examples people give is that, you know, you're not necessarily thinking about how to avoid the the people walking on this crowded sidewalk. you just, you know, you're just sort of making the right kinds of predictions and moves so that you don't bump into anyone.
0: Um, in terms of like the predictive thing, um, I heard somebody describe art once is basically like like one way to look at it is manipulating the energy parameter in this sort of like Carl Friston style free energy way and it makes me think of like stand-up comedians where um when they violate your expectation that's generally like the sort of like you know peak of the aesthetic experience and so Mm -hmm. I mean is is that sort of like another element of improviser's secret sauce is violating expectations um is there an aesthetic specifically to that yeah
1: yeah actually yeah comedy is
0: is is a nice
1: analog to explore um, and yeah, it's not only that they violate the expectation, but I think it's really about the timing, right I mean, mm-hmm. I think good comedians will tell you you could you could say the same exact thing, but if your timing is off, you don't get the laugh um, and yeah, I think in that sense, timing is crucial to improvisers um, yeah, well I, I, you know last night I played a, a you know four hour jazz gig uh. You know, which I hadn't done in a while just playing you know standards with some new musicians that I hadn't played with before. And so it's always this kind of process of negotiating, you know, I got some new musicians to play with. you know, how can I anticipate what they might do? But uh, well, why do I bring that up? well, I, I think there's I think it's possible, you know, both from the player's perspective but also from the listener's perspective, to have a strong sense of when somebody's, you know, really, surfing that wave of the improvised moment right is really there and their timing and everything seems to be functioning you know at its peak mm-hmm. uh, and yeah i think that you know even for the player there is this kind of back and forth between oh wait why am i doing that i've done that a million times before you know and then trying to just shut up that part of the mind and you know in a sense kind of surf the wave of of the musical the shared musical moment and when you're doing that, you're often doing far more interesting things musically. And I think other people can sense it, right? Mm-hmm. The other musicians in the audience can also sense that you're, you know, you're really, you know, firing on all cylinders, right? And so I think a good comedian, it's the same way. You just sort of sense that their timing is, they're fully engaged and their timing is great. Well, I guess you mentioned Carl, we'll go, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say something about Carl Friston, but I'm not oh, yeah, please, an expert by any means. <laughs> I mean, I... I what I do find that work fascinating, and I've I might need another lifetime to fully understand it. Um, but actually, I think it's in that Mark Solms book where it, it, I finally there's a nice chapter dedicated to Friston's work, where he finally at least had me for a brief moment make me feel like I understood it. Um, but but yeah, I do think you know Friston is just on the vanguard of trying to in some ways mathematically model self-organizing processes and these things that we can resonate with and feel and understand. But um, but it's also important to have people that are, you know, trying to model it well. I tend to think of all science as just a form of modeling, right? And, mm-hmm. um, I think it's a safer way to, to engage with scientific results,
0: right? Definitely. Um, so uh, when you're talking about firing all cylinders, it makes me think of flow as put forth by and Um, that, I mean, that seems to be like an essential part of any improvisers, you know, world is like getting into a flow state. And, um, I'm curious what insights you have in terms of like reliably getting into that state, um, and how it impacts your capabilities uh, as an improviser. Sure.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and a hard one to answer. I mean, I guess the quick answer is, like anything else, the more you do it, the, you know, the more reliably you can get there. And you can sometimes even sense, like, if you haven't been improvising with other people in a while, you know, there can be a, you know, a sort of moment where you're sort of transitioning, like, how can I get back to this flow state that I'd like to be in? I mean, on the other hand, it's sort of completely unpredictable. You know, you can both prepare and try to be ready for it, but... Uh, well, I think I have in the book there yeah, the idea that what, you know, when you you, know, you really only recognize the flow state afterwards mm-hmm. you know, because you because you miss being in it, right? Uh, when you're actually in it, in some ways you're not able to, or you wouldn't want to, you know, sort of be aware that you were in the flow state. Um, yeah, I mean, I think and Mihai's idea of at least the way I've always thought about it is that the demands of the situation. And the sort of the preparation and skills and expertise that one brings to the situation are perfectly matched, right? So that in some ways, you're more likely to reach a flow state when you're improvising with improvisers that are able to challenge you, but not over-challenge you, right? You know, mm-hmm. they're sort of, it's, you know, in that ways it's maybe like sports. You know, you'll you'll reach a flow state when you're playing with competitors that are at your level, or maybe ideally slightly above your level, right, so that you can always be learning something new. But if if you're playing with Steph Curry or something, you you know you've got no chance of entering the flow state because <laughs> because you're just not going to have any chance at all <laughs> of keeping up. So yeah, I think it's about you know it's, uh, cultivating situations where the, v- the demands, the challenges, are well matched to what you bring to the
0: situation. Okay. Gotcha. Um, there's a whole chapter where you sort of, uh, spend a lot of time on Evan Parker's improvisations and, um, Evan Parker is like such an interesting improviser. Um, and I'm curious, uh, if you got any insights into like his particular flow state or, or anything that you can, uh, you know, mention from that. Sure. No, I mean, I've, I've, Evan Parker was probably the
1: single reason that I, you know, started along this path. Um. I mean, I, I came up through, you know, sort of the jazz world and, you know, gradually, of course, learned to love people like Ornette Coleman and late Coltrane and, and Cecil Taylor. Um, but yeah, Evan Parker, the first time I heard him, which was actually at David David Liebman's house, said like a saxophone workshop I was participating in, Liebman put on some solo awesome. sob- soprano of Evan Parker. And it just blew my mind. I mean, I, you know, I wasn't sure how to parse it. I, you know, is that still a saxophone? You, you just kind of, all of a sudden, you, a whole new world opens up. So, yeah, I mean, I would say, and getting to know Evan a bit through the process of writing these things has, has been wonderful. And I think I've always resonated with his his thinking about improvisation because I mean, on several levels, but I mean, one level I always appreciate is that he does—he's actually not afraid to situate himself within this kind of jazz community and continuum. Whereas many improvisers, you know, have gone to great lengths to distance themselves from the J word, you know, from jazz. Mm-hmm. Whereas Evan will clearly say that you know it was people like Pharoah Sanders and John Chikai and Archie Shepp and you know many others that inspired him to follow his path. But but I also like about Evan that he. I, he tends to think about the improvising process in this kind of 4E way, right? That it's embodied, it's embedded, it's, it's inactive and extended. That you're, you know, he really has a sensitivity to that all of these variables matter, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, from the, you know, just the purely mechanical, like, how's the horn functioning? How's my reed working today? You know, how are my, you know, chops but more importantly to this idea of like the, the sound of every space will have its its sort of sonic characteristics to explore. So as you probably know, in his solo practice, you know, it's almost as if he's, he's duetting with the space, right? The acoustics of the space. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so I think he's, you know, this idea of there's this wonderful complex feedback loop. I mean, I, Evan always, you know, he seemed to like the idea of cybernetics, which is a field that I've... Loved exploring the history of, even though people don't use that word too often. I really think it was a hugely influential mm-hmm. idea in 20th century science, right? How do we try to understand complex feedback? Um, so, yeah, I, would, I, you know, I think that's always a, a, appealed to me in Evan's approach is that whether it's just him in a room, you know, in front of a few people, you know, he's intimately aware of the complexity of that situation or whether it's him playing with his regular collaborators or you know he also is someone that is happy to embrace playing with people for the first time up on stage right so Mm -hmm. you know I, i always like how he kind of balances those aspects of improvisation i mean i think maybe some folks you know understandably maybe they just want to play with people that they you know have have developed cultivated a you know a strong um You know relationship with and and there's others of course that want to play with people brand new every night
0: (laughs) uh considering like evan parker or dave liebman or john coltrane like as you know these exemplars of like sort of doing complexity and chaos and what they're doing compared to somebody like charlie parker is kind of interesting to me because um like i guess when i was like you know growing up and learning improvisation like i always felt this aversion to transcription and like I was always put under so much pressure to transcribe transcribe. It was like to learn how to improvise you need to transcribe people and so um it makes me think of like a gpt3 engine where it's like it's read all of the internet now i can like spit out sort of uh passable uh narrative and like i feel like that's essentially what it'd be like if i were like learning every charlie parker solo so i can do a sort of uh you know less good version of charlie parker but then like the Evan Parkers of the world are like doing this entirely new thing. Um, I guess, like, how do you think about um, sort of like that, you know, training up on like, I guess, reference, like reference um, versus like trying to always forge some sort of new path?
1: Okay. Yeah. The, um, another great question. Let's see.
0: That so that you're sense. talking about
1: you're t- you're talking about those those sort of the, the new AI that can produce passable language, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, sort of write write a student's essay for them. Exactly. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah, I would say, I, well, I mean, again, for, on a personal level, sometimes I've, I've described myself as kind of a musical Jekyll and Hyde, in the sense that I, you know, I haven't, I still very much can enjoy playing you know, standards even, although I tend to prefer, you know, originals and kind of, but in the in the jazz tradition, right? And then I also very much enjoy Kyborg and Chronomorphic maybe and, and, you know, these projects and opportunities that can take you rather far away from, you know, this more mainstream jazz tradition. But here again, I guess I'm trying to arrive at a point in my life where I don't see these things as completely opposite and disparate activities. Um... You know, I think, I mean, when I'm, I, I did a fair bit of transcribing when I was younger, although, you know, I don't do much of it anymore. But, I, you know, I think there's some utility in that process because it's, if anything, it's just kind of speeding up your hearing and mm-hmm. give, giving you more nuance to your hearing so that, you know, things that otherwise you would just miss, you're able to, you know, focus on and hone in on. But I think part of the learning process when you transcribe is also realizing that you could never possibly replicate charlie parker or coltrane you mm-hmm. know it's as if in trying to emulate them you're you're slowly developing and discovering what's you in that equation you know what's makes it that you would never sound like charlie parker or john coltrane mm-hmm. uh, um and in that sense maybe it's not so different than what evan parker was doing you know he was you know doing that with maybe pharaoh sanders and archie ship as i said but you know he was, he was sort of charting a trajectory that could emphasize things that felt more personal to him. Maybe I'll try I was going to try one other uh, one other sort of an, an, analog. I mean, if we go back to conversation, I mean, clearly we all still enjoy just having conversations about topics, right? A topic is essentially a referent, right, or mm-hmm. a standard. You know, we're going to talk about, well, let's talk about politics or let's talk about sports or, you know, these kind of normal avenues for conversation. But even as you're doing that, what's fun about having those conversations is that you may still land on a really kind of interesting or novel way to think about something or just phrase something or you make a joke about something and your timing is great and everybody around you laughs. You know, there's there's a certain kind of improvised joy in just... Having a conversation around a well-trodden subject, mm-hmm. but there's but there's also a, you know a joy in you know in some ways maybe non-referential improvising is trying to push at you know trying to get farther away from the idea of syntax right that you're you know when we when we're forming sentences we're following syntax pretty precisely such that if I make a grammatical mistake it'll pop out to you. You know, even before you are consciously aware of it, you'll notice I just I made made a mistake. Um, and, yeah, so a lot of music can have that sensibility, right, that it it has a kind of syntax, and we can be surprised, and, and improvisers can consciously try to surprise you. So maybe that's a little bit different in music. You're, you can violate syntax, so to speak, or, mm-hmm. and that's some of the joy of it. But there is a way to improvise where you're pushing even farther away from the idea of music, having a syntax. Um, and that's more of maybe a stream of consciousness writing or poetry where, you know, it's, it's as if the sounds of the syllables are more important than anything semantic in the content of what you're saying. That makes sense.
0: Um, let's see here. Uh, I'm, I guess, um, as we are like getting towards the end here, um, you know, you mentioned time and qualia in the book and, um, it's funny, I feel like I'm part of like what's called Qualia Twitter right now. Like um, there's like a research institute called Qualia Research Institute that's really interested in this stuff. But meanwhile, like I sort of uh, find myself identifying with like Daniel Dennett's perspective, which is kind of this, you know, like a uh, spicy take of like, oh, consciousness doesn't exist. Qualia isn't real. Um, And so I'm curious if you have any takes on that sort of notion, because I mean, I don't think that it's an illusion, but like. Uh, you know, I think that we don't have to talk about Alain Vital, we can like, uh, you know, sort of move forward from uh, you know, terminology like that. But, um, I don't know, I'm just curious if you have any takes on that sort of perspective.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, again, it's maybe I mean, I feel like Dennett maybe wants to be a little bit reductionist when he's doing that, right? He wants to. You know, sort of give you an answer that 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 denies the emergent quality of mm-hmm. qualia. Uh, I've, I mean, I I I I'm more inclined, if I'm going to embrace this complexity paradigm and emergence paradigm, to think about that. You know, there's a richness in the lived moment that we experience as qualia that that betrays any kind of simplistic reductionist viewpoint. There was a, I mean, I'll give you one quick example. The, there was a wonderful woman and friend, and a piano player that I, that she sadly passed, but um, uh, Ryoko Gogan, uh, she was actually married to Joseph Gogan, who was a UCSD professor who also passed, but he, he and I worked a bit on this idea of qualia, um, in musical consciousness, but Ryoko, as a pianist, she could sit down at the piano and you know maybe play an a four forty on the keyboard, and then you know, play a series of you know harmonic progressions or just movements that made you feel that a completely differently. And then she would do something and then play the A, and all of a sudden that a is felt completely differently just based on the musical context that she's creating. And that, that always stuck with me because that was a reminder that, you know, the qualia of that A is always going to be dependent on how it's essentially been a, a set up, right? You know, this is what musicians are doing all the time is creating a context in which you can hear something familiar as new. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how that relates to the kind of redness of red that philosophers love to ponder. Um mm-hmm. But I think the in some ways the anus of A four forty is <laughs> is just that. It's context dependent. You know, we really will experience it. Because we're never we don't hear frequency, right? We we hear this pitch is already a kind of qualitative way of experiencing an acoustic phenomenon. We you know, we don't actually hear the way we don't hear cycles per second, let's say, right? We hear <laughs> we hear we hear a pitch that's already a qualitative way of experiencing music. But even so, beyond that, obviously the pitch is, you know, is embedded in this much larger temporal moment.
0: Yeah, you hear the the relationships, you know, and the absolute hurts. Um,
1: yeah, that's it. I mean, the idea of protension and retention, you know, in phenomenological thought is that the sort of thick moment that we're living in, you know, this kind of feeling of presence is always going to be, inflected by protentions and retentions gotcha interesting
0: um, I guess um, you know you mentioned cybernetics and um, like uh, in the book you also like mentioned uh, Kevin Kelly the futurist and I'm kind of curious like I, I find myself very interested in this sort of realm of stuff and like when when somebody's a musician that's interested in this I'm particularly intrigued because like um, I feel like the other people are into like this futurism territory or you know usually like rich technologists who have like outlandish opinions, but um, when somebody's an artist and they're into sort of futurist stuff, um, I'm intrigued. So I'm curious um, sort of how you see yourself in that uh, you know uh, culture and uh, what aspects of that culture you find interesting.
1: Okay. Yeah, I mean, maybe like you I've, I've I don't know how often I want to put on the futurist clothes, but uh, but from time to time I enjoy it. I mean, one thing I encountered recently, maybe I'll quickly share, is that, and it's something I did sort of write about in an article that didn't make it into the book per se, but this idea, of, you know, we talk about augmented reality and, and virtual reality, and we tend to f- favor the visual modality, right? There's always this idea you're putting on glasses and you're going to be in the metaverse. Um, but really, our auditory, it's our auditory sense that situates us so profoundly in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I mean, I sometimes tell students you know if you shut off the lights and you have to make it from the bathroom to the bed at night or something, you're really actually using your ears to a great extent to negotiate uh you know how you're going to get there uh, and so I guess what I 'm saying is uh, you know I think there's a whole realm of sort of augmented reality through our ears or th- more broadly through our senses of audition that needs to be explored and the the thing I wrote about a while back was a, uh, I mean, it was, it was an iP- iPad app called Reality Jockeys. I think mm. they've since gone under. Um, but uh, it was essentially a Max MSP patch that you could have on your iPhone that, you know, had some presets that as you were going about your day-to-day activities in the world, riding the bus, you know, what have you, you could, you know, f- click that preset and it would transform... You know, using the microphone on the phone, what what was going on around you, and you could kind of interact with it playfully. And, you know, it's, it seemed to me that that general way of augmenting our reality acoustically and sonically, auditorily, um, was, was fascinating. Uh, but, you know, I guess maybe the company you know, ran up against not everybody wants to be having an altered experience while they're on the the bus. (laughs) Um, But, you know, but maybe now that we're starting to embrace this idea of augmented reality being a part of our lives, I guess I I would love to see more people exploring the auditory dimensions of it. Definitely.
0: Um, You know, we briefly talked about, uh, like, the GPT-3 engine and sort of, like, AI-type stuff. Um, And, you know, like with like uh you know dolly and like these visual engines and like stable diffusion i feel like um everybody's currently asking like is the artist going to be replaced by ai and i feel like for some reason ai hasn't really touched music that much yet um but i'm like i don't i don't have any worries about this type of stuff but do you have any sort of commentary on this like technology that's coming in and how it might influence things for creatives
1: yeah yeah, that's the million-dollar question at the moment. Um, yeah, and I actually got a chance to play with Dolly recently, so it, yeah, it's it is interesting to see how these things are evolving. You know, again, I guess I would I th- I would think of it as kind of a creative ecosystem, and you know, these are sort of new entrants in the creative ecosystem. But but like you, I don't have so many concerns. Uh, I mean, one thing we, the more we understand about the brain and cognition more generally is that it's really not a computer. You know, we don't we don't operate like a computer. Computers do things rather differently than we do. Um, which is to say that, you know, I think, you know, we can, you know, what computers can offer, you know, may gain in significance as, you know, as we move forward, but it'll, it'll always be like the human touch that's desired to kind of make sense of it and think about how to use it and I'm, I'm definitely not much of a kind of transhumanist you know in the sense that i've I, you know I'm, I'm not so worried about the computers gaining sentience and and uh, eliminating us um that being said i think we do need to think long and hard about how it is that we want to adopt these technologies and you know what but more so, it's often you know the question is often how much do we want to give to our fellow humans that are going to take advantage of us rather than the, mm-hmm. than the computers. So, You know, you mentioned all the the kind of technology CEOs out there, but you know the the business model right now is rather distorted in the sense that it's all about collecting private information and not <laughs> yeah. not much else. Yeah.
0: That's true. Cool. Um, well, I guess um, we can end this here. Um, do you have any other uh, topics that you wanted to hit or um, commentary or anything you want to plug or promote? <laughs> um,
1: well, let's see. I mean, yeah, in some ways, uh, you know, I like to have sort of multiple projects going. And and if anything of late, I have enjoyed just composing music, new music in the kind of modern jazz Vain. I, I did a, a suite of music called uh, Suite of Uncommon Sorrows that I wrote during the pandemic. You know, I think the pandemic was a really fascinating moment. I mean, it was a, obviously a, a challenging moment and a and a sad moment for many. But I think for a lot of creatives, just having the opportunity to step back and think and and maybe have a little more time to work on things was was quite interesting. And mm-hmm. I, so for me, I've, I've you know I wrote a, an eleven part suite of new music that was. In my own small way trying to uh, you know understand the kinds of the range of emotions that we were going through at the time and i'm working on a a sort of follow-up that i'm at least tentatively titling cautiously optimistic so i try to remain my an optimist at heart and uh, or at least a cautious optimist
0: very cool um, and of course, you know, uh, just as a reminder the book is, uh, sink or swarm, not sink or swim, uh, uh, improvising music in a complex age, um, which, uh, everybody should go and read. Uh, it's very interesting But um, anyway, uh, David Borgo, thanks for joining me. This has been a fun conversation. Thank you
1: so much, John. Yeah. It's been a pleasure for me as well.
0: Right, well, I will talk to you in the future, hopefully.
1: All right. Take care. Adios.